Hi, welcome to COVID in the Lives of This Generation. My name is Grace Tozlar, and I'm the Missions Director for Nurses Christian Fellowship. A little bit about me and how this presentation came about. I worked in Uganda at the beginning of the HIV AIDS pandemic from 1985 to 1990. When COVID-19 shut down the world economy in March, I had a bit of PTSD recalling those experiences in Uganda. God and I had had many conversations about why so much attention was being given to COVID when nobody had paid attention to HIV AIDS. During those conversations, God assured me that he would use this pandemic for his kingdom purposes in this generation of healthcare professionals, just as he had done and used me in HIV AIDS. First, a couple of disclaimers. I'm not an expert in HIV AIDS or in COVID-19. The statistics presented are the best to my knowledge at the time of working on this presentation. <clears throat> my work with the Uganda Protestant Medical Bureau and the Uganda National Control Program for AIDS gave me access to pulmonary unpublished epidemiological data, which I will talk about later. And the COVID-19 data is still being collected and assembled. These are two very different pandemics that have been separated by 35 years and lived at two very different stages of my life. One at the peak of my professional career and also changed the focus of my career and one in retirement. The objectives for this session, number one, to compare and contrast the HIV AIDS pandemic with the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of issues presented resources available, the church's involvement, and public health contributions. Two, to present some lessons learned from HIV AIDS that might be applied to COVID-19. And three, to discuss the spiritual implications of pandemics and the advancement of God's kingdom and missions. So issues presented during the pandemic First, of course, is how is this bug transmitted? For HIV AIDS, it was largely body fluids, most commonly transmitted sexually, and in Uganda, heterosexually. One of the things that you should know is that before HIV AIDS, um, nobody wore gloves to do all of our procedures. Most of us were used to um, just saving gloves for sterile procedures or messy cleanups. Um, the use of gloves became real popular with AIDS because of the body fluid transmission. And I think um, and with COVID-19, the droplet viral particle uh, airborne transmission, it makes it very different uh, from, from AIDS. And obviously the prevention and things are related to an airborne transmission. Symptoms. The symptoms of AIDS um, were interestingly asymptomatic for periods of months and years. A person could be infected with HIV and have absolutely no symptoms for a long period of time. When the body finally succumbed to the disease, it was because it was susceptible to any kind of infection and depending on the infection depended on how it presented. So we had diarrhea, oral thrush, loss of weight, cough, puritis, shingles, so Kaposi sarcoma, cerebral malaria, all sorts of things that uh, any infection could present. And that was very confusing at first because uh, we had all these different diseases but we, uh, that people were experiencing and not recovering from, but uh, we didn't understand that it was really all one problem and the attack on the immune system. COVID-19 can be asymptomatic as well. There are carriers who, who don't have the disease and they can also be pre-symptomatic uh, for often for many days without uh, exhibiting the disease. The symptoms are often fever, cough, loss of taste and memory. 
a friend of mine in New York alerted me to this new phenomenon. It was pretty definitive for her uh, to diagnose uh, COVID and rapid respiratory decline is uh, one of the considerations. Testing. For HIV AIDS, the only test we had available initially was an ELISA test, um, and it was very expensive and limited. It was based on antibody production. So the test results were uh, delayed because of the complexity of the test and often did not detect early infections. Um, because we had to have antibodies present, um, and it takes a while for antibodies to form, we had a lot of false negatives on the ELISA tests. For COVID-19, the, the science that was done on HIV aid really helped uh, develop our viral tests, our antibody tests, and working on rapid testing now when I'm presenting, getting this ready to go here. For diagnosis HIV AIDS, we used a symptomatic evaluation. I'll talk about that in a minute. And appearance, uh, you could walk down the street and look at somebody and you would say, oh, that person has AIDS. Later on, we got access to rapid testing, and that really improved um, helping our diagnosis. COVID-19, we look at symptoms. People are getting sick and coughing and doing those kinds of things. And uh, then viral and antibody testing has been big for the diagnosis with COVID. The symptomatic uh, testing uh, diagnosis of, of AIDS in Uganda became very important. Um, we had a big discussion as to whether or not somebody needed to have a test result before you could tell them that they definitively had AIDS. And we didn't have enough tests, so we developed, actually I didn't, um, Dr. Katabira and Dr. Goodgame uh, developed these this test. They they described major symptoms and minor symptoms and, and said if you had two major and one minor, uh, you would have the disease. So the major symptoms were fever, weight loss, and diarrhea for greater than a month. The minor symptoms were cough uh, without evidence of TV that lasted longer than a month, generalized puritic dermatitis, herpes zoster, oropharyngeal candidiasis or oral thrush, chronic or aggressive ulcerative herpes simplex, and generalized lymph adenopathy. So if you had one of the two of the major and one of the minor, you were diagnosed as having AIDS. You were also diagnosed if you had Carposi sarcoma or cryptococcal meningitis. Issues presented the incidents. Um, boy, for HIV AIDS, um, we, uh, we knew that 30% of the population was HIV positive. Uh, you have to understand that these initial incidence rates are difficult to come by because testing is lacking and we just usually don't have access to, to incidence data, so we're, begin, we're given raw data. That became a source of great frustration for me um, with this whole COVID thing, <laughs> that I was being told how many new cases there were every day and the cases were mounting, but it didn't mean anything because I didn't know how many people were in the population and how many people had been tested and what was the incidence. So the way we got this 30% uh, data for HIV AIDS in Uganda was uh, we tested all of the pregnant women giving birth at Insomnia Hospital for a month. Now pregnant women are usually healthy normal living women and part of the reason for testing the pregnant women was it also gave us uh, a clue as to which babies might need to be looked at for HIV as well. We were very surprised to learn that over 30% of those moms were HIV positive. And then later on, um, I learned from somebody who was on the epidemiology subcommittee of the National Control Program for AIDS that 57% of the military was, was reported to be positive. 
they had had some testing of the military. And again, looking like normal, healthy young, young men, but uh, 57 of them were positive. The ironic thing was is that we were in, we had a military government at that point in time, so that was kind of a frightening statistic. For COVID-19, the best I could find was that about 15% of people tested positive at the peak of the infection in April 2020. Again, we were testing people who were coming because they thought they might have symptoms and they might have the disease. So, uh, you know, it's a very difficult uh, piece of data to acquire. In 2019, 1.7 million people were newly infected with HIV AIDS. That's raw data, but it's still a lot of people getting AIDS. You also want to look at the mortality rate for HIV AIDS. Um, it was 100%. If you had HIV, um, you might not have any symptoms, and those folks we would and knew that people have lived through that. But if you had symptoms of AIDS in, in that time, if you exhibited those things that we talked about, um, you were likely to live only 18 months. Um, that was the 100% of people who had AIDS died. There was no nothing to do about that. For COVID-19, the best figure that I could get at the time was that 3.73% of those who are infected died. That's a big difference. And this is one of the things that God and I talked about. UNAIDS reports that annual numbers of deaths peaked in 2005 at 1.7 million. And in 2019, 690,000 people died of AIDS. Numbers of deaths. It's hard to believe, but in 1990, there were entire villages in the Rakai district that had no one living between the ages of 30, 18 and 35. This is a picture of a banana plantation with the graves of the family members. Since then, um, 32.7 million people have died since the start of the pandemic. And as of October 1st, when I'm working on this, over 1 million people have died of COVID. There's a lot of people who are dying. Treatment. For HIV AIDS, all we had was symptomatic therapies such as NSAIDs, antidiarrheals, cough syrup, a few antibiotics um, if they were available. Um, we were asking for antifungals to treat the oral thrush, but it was considered too expensive at $2.35 for a course of ketoconazole. AZT was available, but it was cost prohibitive at $10,000 a year. For COVID-19, we have symptomatic uh, treatment as well as antiretrovirals, monoclonal antibodies. I guess there's more than one kind of clonal antibodies uh, that I'm hearing about. Steroids and respirators, all sorts of wonderful um, new, new treatments for COVID-19, a lot of them are as a result of the work that was done in HIV-AIDS. Vaccines. Even now, there is still no vaccine for HIV-AIDS 35 years later. For COVID-19, we're hopeful for a vaccine by 2020, maybe 2021, mid-year. Um, we're working at warp speed Social concerns, HIV AIDS, um, we had over 1 million orphan children being cared for by overwhelmed grandparents, aunts and uncles, older siblings, or living alone in, on the streets. There was a lot of, lot of orphans. COVID-19 social concerns, have revealed the racial and socioeconomic disparities that take place in our society. 
it's related to the job loss and the economic shutdown. So we have a lot of social concerns with our pandemic as well and COVID-19. The economic impact, HIV AIDS, uh, we lost productive workforce to the pandemic. Obviously losing people between the ages of 18 and 35 when they are most productive had a big impact on the whole society. We lost school teachers, healthcare personnel, business owners and their personnel. Farmers were unable to cultivate food and government personnel were lost. People in the Ministry of Health, we lost the uh, head of the continuing education efforts. Um, and ultimately, the elders told people that they should no longer feel it necessary to attend every funeral because the time not devoted to agriculture was creating food culture, food shortages within the village. Travel to the village for funerals also cost a lot of time and money and became burdensome for families and businesses. So because so many people were dying and everybody, the culture dictated that families had to go and, and mourn and they would spend a week in the village for a funeral, this became very, very uh, cost prohibitive. So um, actually changed the whole culture and the way funerals were practiced during that time. For COVID-19, the economic impact has been disastrous. Non-essential business has been closed. So many jobs have been lost. The income has been lost. Homes are being lost. And access to health care and insurance have been lost. So our whole economy is right now in a, in a depressed state. The political situation. I arrived in Uganda in the middle of a civil war that ultimately resulted in a military government. This was the little 13-year-old soldier boy that liberated Arua town where I was living. The tanks that were abandoned by the side of the road. And then ultimately, um, when the bodies were found of people who had been killed in the villages, they made displays of their bones alongside of the road. COVID-19, we're in the middle of a divisive presidential election, and it seems to get more and more bizarre each day. Um, ethical concerns. I sat on the patient care and ethics subcommittee of the National Control Program for AIDS, so I was very much involved in the discussions surrounding the ethical issues that were being presented to us. One of the things that we had to deal with was the allocation of limited supplies, things like ELISA tests, pharmaceuticals, and equipment. The ELISA test was particularly interesting as we had to ultimately decide how we were going to use a very limited supply of testing. Ultimately, we decided to protect the blood supply, uh, making sure that we did not transmit HIV when giving transfusions. Confidentiality and testing results. Um, we had long discussions about who needs to know what the test results are and how do we maintain confidentiality in the testing process. Again, um, we decided that only the person uh, would be given the test results, uh, the patient would be given the test results. Um, this was because we felt that in order to control the disease, we needed to have people be willing to be tested and people wouldn't come forward if they knew that the, anybody else was knowing what their test results were. In research, there's a great interest on the part of academics to come and do research and uh, often some of the protocols and the things that would be normal for conducting research in, in the US or the UK were bypassed when they got 
into Uganda. So making sure that uh, people were informed about what was being done and what the research was and if there was any benefit to them for participating in the research and then monitoring the results, making sure that uh, they were accurate and, and not being fudged um, a bit. For COVID-19, obviously the big ethical concern has been uh, some of the resources as well in terms of conducting triage uh, for overwhelmed health systems. I listened to those doctors uh, saying, you know, it's so hard to make a decision as to who gets the respirator and if we don't have enough respirators. And the moral distress that takes place as a result of having to make those kinds of decisions, I, I truly understood. Um, I felt for them. And the protection of healthcare personnel, um, how can we ask people to provide care if we don't have enough PPE? Is it ethical to even ask them to put their own lives at risk uh, when caring for others? And then the disparities that have been revealed as a result of the virus, um, the fact that so many more uh, people of color have been affected by it and, and have died is also an ethical issue. Equipment for HIV AIDS in Uganda in the beginning days, our PPE was soap and water and bleach. Bleach killed uh, the virus very well. Um, we had so limited supplies of gloves. Um, when we finally looked at who was dying in terms of healthcare personnel, we saw that we were losing a large number of our midwives and traditional birth attendants because they didn't have gloves to wear during the attending birth. Um, we had plenty of condoms. They were donated by the international community. For COVID-19, uh, the equipment of PPE and masks and limited supplies of N95 masks, face shields and respirators um, was an issue. In Uganda, the hospitals lacked sheets, personnel, paper to document care and write treatment plans. The family usually provided the personal care and nutrition uh, for the patient. And many patients, unfortunately, were abandoned at hospitals by their families if they were suspected of having AIDS. And those poor patients had limited care. We have enough ICU beds and professional staff, um, but they have become overwhelmed. Just a little story about the lack of equipment. I went on rounds with Dr. Rick Game um, on a Sunday morning. And we went into the wards in Malago Hospital in Kampala and found that there was no nurses present. We had a med student who was accompanying us and there were four patients who were in status epilepticus. And there was no anticonvulsants in the hospital. And the family had to provide a paper for Rick to write down the name of the drug, and then they had to shop for pharmacies for medications. And sadly, often the patients died before they could get the medication that they needed. So depending on where you go in missions, that might be a reality for you as well. There's a lot of things that are lacking. And uh, if you've had experience with COVID-19 and some of the, the lack of equipment here, um, that would be good preparation for where you are going. In terms of personnel resources for AIDS, most of the trained personnel were assigned to hospitals and healthcare centers. First line uh, folks were usually traditional healers, traditional birth attendants, maybe an herbalist, and sometimes our community health workers. For COVID-19, we found that we had inadequate staffing in some of the hot spots, especially for the intensive care units. And that was supplemented by traveling healthcare personnel and deploying some military resources. 
I found it interesting that some health professionals were furloughed even, and surgeries were delayed, elective surgeries have been delayed. This is because during COVID, in an effort to save resources and protect healthcare personnel, offices and clinics and hospitals limited access to healthcare to emergencies only. So what were the public health approaches? For HIV AIDS, since most HIV was transmitted sexually, promoting condoms was the primary approach that was advocated by WHO. For health workers, wearing gloves when coming in contact with blood or body fluids was advocated, but they were often unavailable. As I said, um, before AIDS, we really didn't wear uh, gloves all that much. We would give injections and start IVs and do all that without putting on gloves. So HIV AIDS really changed that whole protocol of coming in contact with blood and body fluids. There was widespread testing to determine HIV status, um, but that presented issues of confidentiality and employment. Obviously, um, if somebody was HIV positive, if their employer find out, found that information out, um, he might say, I don't need you anymore. In the United States, if you wanted to get a life insurance policy, you needed to be tested. Actually, that's how Magic Johnson got discovered that he was had HIV from a life insurance exam. And But if they found out you had HIV, that they were not likely to issue a life insurance policy for you. So there was a lot of stigma associated with HIV. And later, um, needle exchanges for intravenous drug users was a controversial solution that was greatly debated. But ultimately, people felt that uh, and knew, and they documented that giving new needles to drug users was a way to prevent the spread of AIDS. So what's the public health approach for COVID-19? We've all been experiencing this. We shut down schools. We were asked to work remotely from home. We shut down the economy to all but essential work. And then we were asked to wear masks, which was very controversial. I can understand why it was for me too. When WHO had its policy that they could not say that wearing a mask made any difference, um, especially homemade masks uh, and the surgical and the uh, N95 masks were in short supply. But ultimately we came to the conclusion that wearing any kind of face covering was going to be helpful. Then we were told wash our hands and use hand sanitizer frequently and we are supposed to social distance a minimum of six feet apart. I find it interesting that Dr. Tony Fauci keeps trying to change social distancing to physical distancing. Every time I hear him, he's using physical distancing, but every time anybody else talks about it, I hear social distancing. So that message is not being changed easily. Then we're currently in the stage of trying to have many tests and find out contacts of people there's lots of problems with this, but testing and contact tracing is a means of controlling this disease. And then we're also working on a vaccine at warp speed. Let's talk a little bit about the church's involvement in the HIV pandemic. The church was involved early on in Uganda. Uh, in 1988, the Catholic and Protestant churches came together. Actually, it was Dr. Miriam Duggan and Dr. Rick Goodgame uh, to produce a little booklet entitled Medical Science and God's Word Gives Answers to Questions Related to AIDS. This was disseminated through both the Protestant and Catholic churches. It was written and translated into about 20 of the 45 languages and very effective in giving the message related to AIDS became the beginning of what is known as the ABC method to uh, AIDS, abstinence for A, be faithful in marriage for B, and C was condoms if necessary. Um, this was later changed to Christ, 
I went to Uganda after I had come back home and I said, I think we should change C to Christ. And they said, oh, we've already done that. And they gave me a pamphlet showing that they were advocating that people give their lives. So what was the church in the USA's involvement in HIV AIDS? It took much longer in the United States. There's a lot of fear about the disease and the ways it was transmitted. Persons with hemophilia and homosexuals were the people most affected. And the church was reluctant to get involved because it was a disease of homosexuals. When I came home in 1991, no one wanted to hear anything about what I had done in the work on HIV AIDS and the problem that HIV AIDS was presenting in Africa. It took until 1988 when Richard Stearns from World Vision became aware of the effect of the pandemic in Uganda to start programs. He started programs to educate the church about the problem. Later, Kay Warren took a vision trip with World Relief and then Saddleback uh, began their leadership in HIV AIDS as a major mega church effort. In 2001, the Black Evangelical Association and World Relief began their eye care campaign to address HIV AIDS in Africa and the US. It was my privilege to work with um, World Relief and, and the Black Evangelical Association on that effort. Then Bono began his one campaign and challenged the church in the US to become more involved. In 2004, he came to Wheaton College, which joined the campaign. I happened to be teaching adjunct there at the time, and it was my, it was great fun to work with the students to uh, begin their efforts in looking at HIV AIDS. And finally, in, uh, nine, in 2006, the Urbana Missions Conference that InterVarsity holds every three years had a track dedicated to missions through the lens of AIDS. I was the co-leader of that uh, track and Bono made a virtual appearance and Rick and Kay Warren presented uh, their plenary and uh, workshops over at that uh, Urbana. World of Vision actually had an experiential exhibit to educate the participants about HIV AIDS. So actually 20 some years later, um, the church was finally awakening to the problem in Africa and beginning to address it. So what has been the involvement of the church in the COVID-19 pandemic? Thankfully, we're a little more on the ball. Um, I'm involved with the Health for All Nations movement, which uh, has housed the Lausanne Movement Issues Network on Health. And we held a Zoom conference on April 17, where over 200 church and health leaders from around the world participated. I told Mike Soderling, who heads our, our work, that I would have died for that when I was working in Uganda. Uh, to have a conference like that, but on, but we didn't have in, the internet back in 1985. So thankfully, the internet is helping our churches to respond. But it does remain to be seen how the church will address the fallouts of COVID-19. There's a lot of work to be done. So many people have lost jobs and don't have enough food, don't have enough. They're losing their homes. They're losing uh, a lot of their their work that has been done. So they need a lot of assistance and we need to be able to rise to that occasion. On to lessons learned. Pandemics are chaotic. It's just the nature of the beast. That's because decisions are being made on the information available at the time. That's how we got masks are not necessary. And then we had masks are mandatory. It's because we have more information, we learned more. There are many competing interests in a pandemic. There are political interests, there are economic interests, there are social interests. They're all vying for attention and for their point of view. My advice is don't let these interests interfere with your ethical decision-making and Christian values.
And then money dictates approach. Money is what drives the whole business. Um, in public health, there are two approaches. One is a vertical approach, which addresses a single issue, such as HIV or COVID-19 or TB, whatever. And that is a program that is just designed to address one thing. We like it in public health because you can measure it and you can show progress easily. But the second approach is one that I was involved in in terms of community health development, where we are approaching a whole community. It's a horizontal approach, looking at everything and then helping the community to look at what its priorities are and develop their own programming. At the time I was working at UPMB, I was advocating for the help that HIV be integrated into all of our programming. But unfortunately, donors were not interested in having that approach. They were in more interested in the vertical approach. And so we ended up using the vertical approach and hiring somebody just for HIV. Secondly, when we're communicating information to change behavior, hope is important. I learned this because when I visited after a time away and talked about evaluation of our initial programs, I learned that uh, the program that we had thought was so successful, a drum beat on the radio that signaled danger and then gave the message related to HIV and everybody in the country was talking about, did you hear the drum beat? Did you hear the drum beat? So I asked them, I said, How, so what happened with the drum beat? How did that come out in terms of evaluation? And they said, you know, it was great in getting the information out, but nobody changed their behavior because they didn't have any hope. They thought they were going to die anyway. They might as well just continue on as they were. So hope is an important piece of information. Some spiritual insights that have come out of my experience with HIV AIDS and now with pan the pandemic of COVID-19. Cultures and worldviews vary in their interpretation of current events. And we need to seek to understand a kingdom worldview of the pandemic to provide meaning and purpose to the experience. We all want to know what is God really up to with this pandemic and how does that fit into my worldview? One of the first insights I had was to value people because they are created in God's image. <clears throat> it's very easy to get caught up in the numbers of public health. How many people are getting infected? How many people have died? But each one of those numbers represents a person who is created in God's image. They are people that God values, that he loves, and that he cares for. Next, I could not live without prayer and lament. It is essential. I can't tell you the number of times that I just laid it all out before God and said, I don't understand what's going on here, God. I need you to help me. Uh, help me understand what you're trying to accomplish. And thankfully, he's faithful and he uh, sends his Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word and through uh, the little voices that we hear in our heads. Next, God gets credit for the success. Um, I, in 2003, GMHC had a pre-conference on HIV AIDS, and there was a fellow there who was working in Uganda who was talking about what had happened and what he was doing, and, and he mentioned my friends, Miriam Duggan, and, and I went up to him afterwards, and I said to him, uh, I've kind of lost track of Miriam. Do you know where she is? Do you have any contact information for her? He said, oh, I've never met her. And at that time, I realized, oh, uh, he's taking credit for the work that Miriam and Rick did. And boy, I had to tell you, I went before God on that one and said, God, what's going on here? And after a while, God said to me, you know, Grace, it's not about who gets the credit. Uh, it's all about me, and I should get the credit. And I thought, yeah, God, you're right. You know, from now on, you will get the credit for what happened in Uganda. Thanks for you. Thanks to you and your mercy and your love and the pouring out of your spirit on the people there. They have had a modicum of success in combating HIV. Next, 
Next, uh, the created order provides insight, insight into God's plan for sex. Boy, this is a biggie. I went to, on a visit uh, after a couple of, about four or five years, and God took the blinders off of my eyes and showed me what was really going on during the time that I was there. Basically, he told me that because he has chosen to represent his relationship with the church in marital terms, Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, that is to show us how much he loves us and um, anything that interferes with our understanding of the mystery of marriage is, is an uh, attack uh, by Satan on our, our understanding of and God's plan for sex. So uh, that, was, that was really cool to find that out, figure that out. And when I was getting ready to retire again, uh, God showed me that he is a redeeming God, and thankfully he redeemed my mistakes and used this experience to grow me spiritually. Um, and the other thing that he sort of said to me was, don't worry about the next generation, Grace. I, I will do the same for them. So I'm telling you that God is committed to redeeming your mistakes and sending you on and uh, using that experience, especially the experience of COVID-19, to grow you into the people that he wants you to be. So what in spiritual insights can we gain from COVID-19? This is one that I struggled with, a question that I've been working on and thinking about a lot. One of the things that uh, has come to me is that the Trinitarian God teaches us a lot about a perfect community. And uh, we are a pretty individualistic culture. Uh, we think of, about ourselves more than others. A quote from Time Magazine, Americans today tend to value the individual over the collective. A 2011 Pew survey found that 58% of Americans said freedom to pursue life's goals without interference from the state is more important than the state guaranteeing nobody is in need. So we value our own lives over the lives of others. And this is something that I don't think is honoring to God and maybe we need to be thinking more about is how we can be better neighbors. And maybe God is using COVID-19 to teach us about what it means to be a neighbor. We also may have taken community for granted. Um, I think the fact that we are not able to go to church uh, and worship together has made that more uh, important to us. I, there are many people, um, I shouldn't say many, but there were a few folks in my home church where their kids were involved in sports and they were involved in traveling sports and often they would miss church because they were involved in sports. Sports was more important to getting them into the right college and all of that sort of thing. So. Um, we may have taken community for granted, and I think we're getting, gaining a greater appreciation for what it means to be a community. And I'm thinking that God will use this pandemic to advance his kingdom for sure, for real. <laughs> he already is. I have a friend who is uh, involved in a church plant in Los Angeles, and she told me, great, she wouldn't believe our our online services are being watched in many places around the world we never would have expected. So the fact that everybody is putting church online and people are accessing it, um, it you can access many church services um, anytime you want them and God's word, word is going forth. I remember uh, many years ago when the internet sort of became more common I remember thinking, this is the new Romans road. It's going to bring the word of God to around the world, just like the Romans who built roads for the church to expand. And initially, the internet, I think, is going to be the way that God brings his word to those who, who need to hear it. So we have a lot of things to be thankful for. This pandemic has, has uh, opened up doors that we never thought would be opened. And may he open doors for you wherever you may be.